I've just conquered a lot of really intense things Mm -hmm. and have been able to accomplish a lot um, because of it. And then I continued. So now I, I try to choose my challenges as opposed to the challenges choosing me. Greetings, my friends, and welcome to Hardwater Radio. This is Jason Archer. We're recording under the umbrella of Hardwater One here in the Valley of the Sun. And today we continue the mission to arm humans with the tools to crush mediocrity, create mastery, and live in total wellness with my next guest, Esther Adler. Now, Esther just recently graduated PT school. She's been a yogi, a mindfulness teacher, and what else? All kinds of things you've been up to. An author, a speaker. The name of her book is Breaking the Chains to Freedom. So I highly encourage you guys to look up Esther Adler, pick up her book. But today we're going to get her take on her own story. So welcome. Thank you for being here. I'm super excited to talk to you. I'm excited to be on on this and talk to you. This is great. Yeah, for sure. So um, how are things out in New York today? Really hot and humid. <laughs> Very typical of New York summer. It's great, though. Love yeah. it. I went, awesome. uh, worked out in the morning, went for a swim studied, of course, meditated. It's been great. That's fantastic. That's fantastic. Um, Now, um, you were introduced to me by a mutual friend, uh, Brianne. So shout out Brianne. And uh, when you and I first did a little pre-interview, you started telling me a little bit about your story. And I believe that your story is one that can impact many, many, many lives. So I want to do my best today to allow you the space to tell your story. And I'm wondering if you could just kind of give us, um, you know, where it begins and let's just start and uh, let you speak on it and we'll uh, go and take questions and and go in deeper where 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 we feel necessary along the way okay um so i actually uh began with uh wanting to write my book uh to really just write my mother's story Mm. um because when my mother my mother died when i was really young i was 20 not even 23 um, and she, um, had a major impact on my life and I wanted everybody to know about who she was and how she impacted the world. And so I started asking, uh, my family, her closest friends and whatnot, and they gave a lot of adjectives as to who she was, which were all great, but they had a hard time you know, sharing specific stories. And I was like, how do you not have a story about my mother? This is so crazy. <laughs> and so then I realized, wait a second, I have a, I have stories about my mother. So I started writing stories that I had. And then through that, I was like, wait a second, I have a pretty crazy and awesome story as well. Like maybe it should be kind of like a accumulation of, you know, me, her, just, you know, our stories, so to speak. And that's kind of how I started the book. And so then it, it kind of became more about my journey, but it was the um, the motivation and through uh, my mother of uh, how that kind of started. So um, with that, uh, my mother, when she was 13, had rheumatic fever and um, that caused her heart valves to become very weak. And the rest of her life, she had a lot of heart problems. Uh, When she was 18, she had an aneurysm that burst. She survived that. And this was like in 1964. So that was very rare back then. It's even rare kind of now. Mm -hmm. But, you know, medicine is much better now. But back then for someone to survive something like that was almost unheard of. 
Um, and she did, and she she lost the left side of her body, meaning it was uh, paralyzed. But that was really it, and she was still able to walk and function pretty well. Um, and then when I was seven, and I don't, I honestly don't remember how old she was. Um, she had an ischemic stroke, which um, she got to. She ended up losing the um, the the almost the rest of her right side. Mm. And um, she lost balance. She also had difficulty speaking. Um, so it was much more severe. And I ended up growing up essentially taking care of her because um, she, uh, she needed a lot of help. Um, with that, she was a fighter. She, she ended up accomplishing things that most people never thought she would be able to accomplish. Like I'll never forget, I came home from school one day and she was standing leaning like so her wheelchair was behind her and she was standing on all like she was leaning into the stove and she was kind of trying to like stir some food and I totally panicked because even that was really dangerous for her and I was like mom what are you doing she just looks at me and she's like what does it look like I'm doing I'm cooking <laughs> like it was like a, it was like a normal thing you know <laughs> And, you know, back, you know, back then, like that wasn't very normal for her because like what she would normally do is sit in the wheelchair and then instruct me mm -hmm. on what to do. And I would cook. I see. So I, I started cooking from like when I was, you know, she came home from. So again, back then, therapy, um, you know, she was in the in the convalescent home uh, or what's called inpatient rehab in, in nowadays. Um I would say like months, I don't know, maybe three months, you know, just to give you some context, the stroke victim nowadays is at most in that kind of environment for six weeks at most. Mm. So she, she was there for a really long time. So I think that was helpful. Um, and then she would do her exercises every day. Um, and, you know, she just tried things that she didn't think she could do all the time. So she ended up really gaining a lot more um, independence, um, despite some major, major, um, you know, paralysis and, and things that she shouldn't have been able to do. Um, so much so that she was a fine artist and uh, she ended up having four art shows wow. that she, she, she was able to, to do. Yeah. And, um, Two of those art shows was with some other disabled artists, and I got to meet some of the most amazing people. And I'll never forget one of her best friends uh, had a congenital deformity where he had no arms, so his hands came out of his shoulders. Mm. And he his work was just so beautiful. It was just incredible to kind of see what he could do and, you know, how he was able to adapt with, with a pretty major um, disability. Sure. And there was a... There was another lady who um, was disabled from the neck down. So she used her mouth to draw. And I was just, I was amazed. I mean, what what people can do with some major, I can't do it. And I've got all my limbs and fingers and it was, it was just so awe-inspiring. So that, that, is that was like my first. Yeah, I was just going to say that is truly amazing. Were you old enough at this point in your life to really appreciate the sort of adversity that your mom was facing and overcoming at this point? 
Yeah, there was a moment on, I, I don't know if I, I, I wrote about this in my book. Um, I think I was like nine years old and my mother, so I grew up ultra religious. So that's another thing that I, I kind of went through leaving the ultra religious Jewish world. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, so we kept Shabbos. So Shabbos is uh, Saturday. It's like the the Sunday day of rest that, you know, the, the Christians have. Um, but we have a lot of um, things we're not allowed to do. Um, but we usually have company and we have, um, you know, some big meals, Friday night dinner and, and Saturday lunch dinner and a lot of company a lot of times. It's very traditional. So Saturday afternoon, pretty much every single week, we had tons of guests that would come to visit my mother so at first I thought they were all coming to like make my mother feel better. And I, maybe that's how it started. But as time went on, I realized they were coming for them mm. because my mother made them feel better. Right. And, and I just loved it. And there was one person that came once that I knew came for the first reason she was coming. She was thinking I'm doing this big in Hebrew. It's called a mitzvah. It's like a good deed. Right. I, and it's like, almost a requirement when you're religious, like you have to do a bunch of these mitzvahs, right? So she came and because my mother couldn't speak, she her mind was perfectly fine. But the articulation of words was very, very difficult for my mother. And this woman talked to her like she was dumb, spoke very slowly, loud, And I literally wanted to punch this woman. I was just standing there yelling in my head, like, don't treat my mother like this. Like, she is way smarter than you. Like, what's your problem? But I just kind of stood there and this whole thing is going on in my head. And I'm like, oh my goodness, you know? Um, And my mother just laughed. Like, she, you know, she didn't care. Yeah. I was the one that was very sensitive, you know? So, um, you know, and every once in a while, I would talk to my mother and, uh, you know, ask because I haven't told you the the other aspect of my story, which I'll get to in a second. But um, my mother was also abused, mm-hmm. as as was I. And so sometimes we would have these long conversations and, I, you know, and, and she would basically say it's like, you know, uh, the only other choice I have is for us to live with you know, grandma and grandpa. Right. And Mm -hmm. she just didn't want to do that. Sure. So I think she was really trying her best to do what's best for me and for, and for her in the situation that she, you know, she was in. Sure. Um, And that was really hard. So we had these long talks and, and um, she felt very torn because she was disabled, you know? So, uh, uh, you know, most of the time she was, uh, you know, we, and, and that was just so good to see, like most of the time she felt very positive and, you know, she was a fighter and she, you know, accomplished amazing things. And every once in a while she had a bad day and she had the pity, you know, poor me thing. Right. Mm-hmm. And then I realized, you know, and I was thinking about it after she died and I said, having a bad day and, and feeling sorry for yourself doesn't make you a weak person. And doesn't, you know, it, we all have moments where we feel sorry for ourselves. We all have moments where, you know, we um, 
almost almost feel um, like we want to be pitied or we, and it's okay. You know, like I realize we have to give ourselves a moment as long as that's not our whole story, as long as that doesn't take over our lives. So we, if we have that moment for five minutes or whatever, you know, acknowledge it and actually sit with it and let it move through you. And then it'll actually move through you so that you can go back to being that empowering go-getter and getting, you know, what you want in life done. And I think my mother did that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. As opposed to just numbing out to the things that we feel are sort of impacting us negatively. Right. Exactly. I think we don't give ourselves permission to have those negative emotions. And if we understand that our, our emotions aren't us, you know, they just move through us. So by fully, fully experiencing it, you know, and I always give the example of watching a two-year-old, you know, if you look at the two-year-olds and they throw that tantrum and they really throw it, I don't know, I have four kids, so I've experienced it, you know, and then they're done. They're done with a tantrum and they're going on and they give you this big hug like it, nothing right. ever happened, right? Yeah, they've but exercised what, the demon. The demon is gone. Yeah. But what do we do? We like do this passive aggressive. No, I'm not angry. <laughs> we lie. Like, That's what adults do. Anyone, right? the, the, art, the art of being an adult is the art of becoming a liar, really. Exactly. But then that's what causes all of this physical pain, mental pain, blocks of like, we're like, wait, why aren't we accomplishing things? We're too busy holding grudges and feeling bitter and you know, being angry or whatever it is, you know, instead of fully feeling and then moving on, mm -hmm. you know, so getting back to my story. So I talked about my mother. Um, so me, um, so I lived with, you know, a disabled mother, and I was her primary caregiver. But my aunt, she, um, she's very, very wealthy. And she uh, essentially hired someone while I was in school to help my mother um, and she also did things like laundry and helped clean the house and that sort of thing. Um, and helped with dinner when, uh, I was, let's say late or something like that. And then she would leave and I would essentially take it, take over. Mm -hmm. And then as time went on, my mother was able to do more and more. Um, with that said, uh, my dad was physically abusive. Mm -hmm. Um, he, I don't know exactly what his um, exact diagnosis is. It really depends on who you ask. Um, but he's like borderline paranoid schizophrenic. Um, he definitely has some major disorders. Uh, and he was a genius. So when um, way before I was born, he actually is a uh, like a prodigy genius. He was one of those people that in high school had already finished everything like in undergrad and beyond. He was already um, in chemistry labs when he was a child looking, you know, looking for cures for diseases and that sort of thing. Uh, and every Ivy League school wanted him for free. He had a free ride. And he went to like four of them each semester essentially changing and somewhere within that first year is when he cracked and it's like 
the the lot there's like a fine line between uh, genius and insanity was very true for my father. Mm-hmm. He ended up having a nervous breakdown, and he did crack that line. Was this, and, was uh, this just because of the pressure he was putting on himself, or or what? I'm not really sure. I've asked my grandmother when she was alive, and she never really knew. I don't think she ever fully accepted the fact that her son cracked. Mm-hmm. All she kept showing me is all the proof of how smart he was. He mm-hmm. had personal, you know, letters from the president at the time that wrote to him. And he had letters from the presidents of these Ivy League schools, like essentially begging him to come and, um, you know, showed all of his, you know, like all the work he did in the labs and everything. And um, I'm sure that had something to do with it, but nobody like his sisters still have no clue what really happened and Mm -hmm. what caused it. Um, But he did crack and then he ended up uh, leaving school. So he never even finished uh, undergrad. And um, throughout my childhood, I saw like notebooks and notebooks filled with stuff that really made no sense. Maybe to someone who has some major chemistry background that can also kind of sift through the genius versus the craziness, um, they maybe would have been able to figure out because I'm sure there's some really cool stuff in there. And I had kind of skimmed through some of it and I just got tired. I was like, oh, I can't. Like, this is terrible. This is really painful. <laughs> um, but he, um, yeah, so he he's... He's a little bit crazy. I mean, and I'm being nice over here. And I, um, so I grew up essentially trying to avoid him because mm. he was severely physically abusive um, to the point where he actually almost killed me twice in my childhood. Wow. And yeah, um, I, when I was a kid, I would dream like daydream of ways of how he would accidentally die. Like that was like what I was hoping that he would just not show up one day. Now, was this like a, a switch that had flipped in him? You said that he cracked at some point. Was was it just like night and day where he was, you know, perfect gentleman one day and the next he just couldn't deal with people and, and was lashing out or what? He only lashed out on me and my mother and my mm. brother. Um, He's very gentle as a, like a human being, like he's not a violent person. I know it sounds like, of course he's a violent person. Um, He's like to the world, he's not a violent person. Right. He gave himself Um, permission with you guys then. Yeah. He, he has some major mental, you know, uh, problems. He needs to be on medication. And I think, it, ha- it has to do with his illness, like with uh, maybe the schizophrenic or like he, if he has like borderline, like a, a personality disorder. So like maybe one of his personalities would play a role, you know, and he would just switch. Like I knew moments before he was going to hurt me because his eyes would go crazy. Mm. And um, I, I would get myself ready or I would like run of run out of the house if I could. Um, um, but like if his eyes didn't do that, he was very calm. Like he was a completely different person. Um, I, I can't even explain it. It, I think it's like a neuronal sort of thing that happens. Like he, that's why he needs, he needs, he needs uh, medicine. 
Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I'm not really sure. I think he just doesn't, he doesn't know how to handle himself. He doesn't know how to handle life. Like to this day, my grandmother has passed, but has uh, put her money in um in a trust where he is given a certain amount of money every month. He's 70 something years old, my, my father, and still has no, he has no ability to take care of himself Mm. and he never has. Um, And so it's really, it's really sad. So for, for years, I was so angry at him. I hated him. I wanted nothing to do with him. And I'll never forget, and this I know I, I have, I talk about in my book, I'm, I'm sitting, this is like a little bit, I think, before I, I uh, go through my divorce, which that's a whole other story. <laughs> but um, I'm sitting there and something tells me that I need to write a letter to my father, one that I won't give to him in order for me to finally release all, you know, we had just talked about, like, if you don't release all of these feelings, it's going to end up eating you, right? Mm-hmm. And then you're, you're never going to be happy and you're never going to be able to get on with your life. Something, maybe it was one of the millions of teachers I was following because I had followed all these like self-help teachers and spiritual teachers and whatnot. Or perhaps it's just something that came to me. I'm not really sure. But I decided to write a letter to him. And I wrote, and it it took me maybe three hours. I wrote a letter of everything he's done to me. And he's done some really terrible things to me. Um, And then I wrote why I'm forgiving him. And which was like a whole other, you know, like, you know, I talked about myself. Um, I talked about, you know, the fact that I need to heal and move on. And I also talked about for him so that he can you know, be free of this energy and move on. Mm -hmm. And then I was done with the letter and I'm sitting there just holding it. And this is still a time where handwriting stuff. (laughs) And um, I literally, I just started crying because it was cry of relief because I physically felt like this huge boulder that I didn't even know was on my back was all of a sudden lifted off my back. I couldn't, it was like a physical feeling. I'll never forget that. And I just sat there and just cried for maybe an hour, you know, of this like relief. And then I realized I don't hate my father anymore. I realized he's a really sick man. I'm not necessarily going to have this amazing normal, uh, you know, relationship with him because he's a sick man. But I talk to him on the phone when he comes to New York, we'll meet in a coffee shop and I'll speak to him for a little bit. And I have zero anger and hatred in my heart towards him. Mm. Um, And it's because of that exercise and because of, you know, the fact that I was able to release and realizing it's so unfortunate he needs help. Not to say that every abusive person is like my father. There are some that are, you know, I don't know, they are just out to like, you know, hurt the other person because they're so bitter and blah, 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 and all of that. And that's got Mm -hmm. a different story. 
in terms of my father, he's just a very sick man. Right. And he um, he's needed to be on medication since that time, probably before that happened. And it was never addressed. And I think when it was addressed, he just, you know, wasn't interested and didn't want to um, have anything to do with it. Sure. Yeah. You, know? you, can, you so. can't force him into it, right? So... As I'm listening to your story, I can I see a lot of parallels in a lot of people's lives, but especially mine. Like both of my parents came from abusive homes, and my father had polio, so he wasn't able to run away from the abuser. My mm. mother was the oldest, so she took on all the responsibility, and I mean, she saw her brothers tied to chairs and beaten stuff like this. And um, you know, so these two guys got together when they were 18 and decided it would be a good idea to build a relationship and have kids, right? Wow. So, you know, growing up in my household was a bit chaotic as well. But like you, you know, I look back on that and I have no animosity toward my parents because I know that they did the best that they could with the tools that they had available to them. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not like they were trying to create chaos or, or be ill or, you know, create, you know, some sort of negative environment for my brother and myself. They did the best that they could. And when I see them, I see them as kids going through those environments and mm-hmm. I get emotional about it, you know, and I, I have nothing but compassion for them. And by the same token, you know, they won't take my advice, right? I'm just the kid. I'll always, right. I'll always just be the kid, right? Yeah. So having a relationship with them is me, you know, adjusting myself to fit their environment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's huge. That's, that's incredibly huge. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah, of course. <laughs> this is your podcast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and, and it's hard it's hard to get that because it's so much easier to feel victimized right because then we have an excuse to to feel bitter and angry and all of these things that end up really just hurting us instead of saying oh you know there there's a reason why people act the way they do yes maybe it's inappropriate for us and so we can find ways to remove ourselves from that situation mm-hmm. and it's like where i go to like some of my favorite teachers like one of them is Eckhart Tolle and he says you have like essentially two choices right like you either kid can fully accept the situation change it or leave it mm-hmm. but what do most people do they don't change or leave it but they also don't accept it all they do is complain Right. And then, so, and he calls that insanity because, which is totally true, right? Absolutely. Yeah. It's like uh, people behave as if they're rooted to the ground. You know, it's like, uh, no, I can't leave this situation. I can't leave this crappy job. I can't leave this shitty relationship. No, I'm rooted. <laughs> it's like, no, you're not. You have legs. Get up and use you, them, you know? You absolutely could, which is one of the reasons why I'm starting off as a travel physical therapist. So excited. Yay. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, So then going on. um, So I talked about my dad growing up with him. um, And so then now you can kind of understand. So he would also abuse my mother, Mm -hmm. um, not as much as me and my brother. Now I'm curious, Um, quick question for you on that. I'm just curious um, as to how old your parents were when they got together. um, My mother was in her twenties, like maybe 24. And so, you know, they were religious and it was an arranged marriage. Mm-hmm. And my mother had told me once, cause we talked a lot about why she was with my father and everything like that. And she had admitted to me that the only reason why she married my father is because she was told nobody else was going to marry her because she was handicapped. Mm-hmm. This was 
when she only had that first stroke, the aneurysm. Right. Um, and I think she felt that that was not true. And I would have to agree because my mother was just such an amazing person that I think many people would have wanted to marry her, you know, with her being um, disabled. Um, and I think like she was very bothered by it and she had regrets. Mm. And then at the same time, she also, and a lot of abused women go through this. So many were like, but your father needs me. And right. it was just like, wow. So you're going to stay in this horrible detrimental situation because he needs you. Well, you know, and, and so that's, again, like we'll find reasons to kind of keep being hurt. Oh yeah, for sure. Whether we hurt ourselves or whether we let other people hurt us or whatever, you know? And then I was like, but other people can help him, you know, while you find a way to help yourself. But she was just scared. And and so many of these women are scared. Right. You know, Maybe she saw that as a justification, you know, like a, an easy justification without having to think deeper about it. You know, you'd mentioned the religious context and what the expectations were for marriage and that sort of thing. You know, maybe that was just a topic she didn't want to broach. Yeah, you know? absolutely. And, you know, again, you know, even back then, I think divorce was still really looked down upon in general. I mean, there were so many factors, I think, that played a role in, in, in it. Um so who knows, you know, now, um, she has passed, she has since passed, but, uh, um, I, I think like she had, you know, moments had told me, yeah, you know, I would leave him, but, you know, and then she would say like, she needs me or I'm scared, you know, we can't just live with grandma and grandpa and that sort of thing. So, right. uh, I, I think it was just a very scary thing for her, mm -hmm. you know? And so it's funny because I ended up literally doing exactly what my mother did. Imagine so that. I was... <laughs> right. <laughs> Imagine that. Right. And children learn what they live, right? It's unbelievable. So I was 18. I was still religious. And my aunt told me based on because of who my parents are, nobody's going to want to marry me. And so basically I need to marry this person who she found. Wait, hold on just a second. You said your aunt told you this because yeah. of your parents? I don't understand. So my aunt was the, the rich one. Okay. Um, she essentially stepped up as like the parent in my house, the okay. well parent in my house. Um, you know, I was living with my mother and I, I would say, you know, you know how I, I ended up going to Columbia University for physical therapy school and you have to write an essay, you know, as part of your entry to PT school. Mm -hmm. So the title of my essay was, I was my mother's mother. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. And I kind of shared how I took care of my mother and, and everything I, I've shared with you now. And I really felt like I lost a mother, like a mother figure. I was her caregiver who was my caregiver, you know, and right. I, I really felt like I didn't have anyone really taking care of me. I was taking care of her. I was making sure she was getting into bed safely. In fact, when I was nine, I was helping her onto the toilet once and I was a tiny little nine-year-old and my mother was 
know, relatively big because she was in a wheelchair. She was a 4'11", but a little bit overweight. Mm-hmm. Not severely overweight, but, you know, a little hefty. But again, I'm nine years old, maybe maybe 70 pounds, right. <laughs> not even. And I'm helping her on the toilet and she fell. Mm. And she ended up needing stitches. And I'll never forget, like, I didn't even know what to do. I was like, do I call 911? Like, I didn't know what to do. And I ran to my neighbor and she had like six kids. This is all like very religious people. So everyone has a million kids. And (laughs) I was just like, she's like, I can't go over. Like, wait till your dad gets home. Call the ambulance. Like, she didn't even know what to tell me. I was like, oh, God. And did she hit her head? You said she needed stitches. She hit her head. Yeah. And she ended up needing stitches on her head. Um. And so she, she ended up being fine other than needing stitches. She came home later that day, but I've never forgiven myself, you know, well, I have since, but for many years, I didn't forgive myself thinking like what kind of caregiver I was without remembering, wait a second, I'm still the child. (laughs) Yeah. At this point in your life, you're the one who should be receiving care, not so much giving it. Yeah. Right. And so then I, I realized, you know, I have to give myself, you know, I did my best. And um, my mother was amazing. She was lying on the bathroom floor laughing, trying to calm me down, you know, and she's like, it's okay. Like, you know, wait until, you know, Abba comes home, Abba's daddy in Hebrew. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I, I was like, but you're bleeding. Like, I don't know. What do I do? Like, she was like laughing, totally making jokes out of the whole situation the entire time. And she was probably in a lot of pain. It's amazing, you know? though. It's funny, though, but yeah. that, that was probably a, a great opportunity for her to actually care for you, you know, when you look at it that way. Yeah, absolutely. Actually, never did look at it that way. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Um, she really was amazing. You know, she she really made light out of some of the worst situations. And mm. um yeah. And so I, I, I struggled with that at times where I would even lash out sometimes at, you know, my mother like yell at her for no reason. And like, because like, I, I felt like I didn't have anyone taking care of me and I would get angry or like, you know, there were times I felt like I had this thing at school, but I felt guilty leaving my mother alone for a few hours. And so I wouldn't go and then I'd get angry, you know, so I definitely had moments like that, where I would just be a kid and just be really, really angry and yell at my mother, like, look, you know, <laughs> sure. sure, yeah, I yeah. think, I think you're in, I think you in there earned those moments, it sounds like. Absolutely. And Definitely. I think it's okay. We all, we all can have moments, you know, you know, where we are human, right? hundred <laughs> percent. So tell me about um, this, uh, this aunt of yours telling you who you had to marry or, or, limiting your marriage options it sounded like she was doing yeah well I think my aunt so she she felt responsible for making sure that our life would progress as she thought it should Mm -hmm. because she knew my parents weren't in a position to make sure that that would happen my dad had no ability to set us up Mm -hmm. you know for marriage and my mom, my mother wasn't really in, in that situation. She also couldn't, even though her mind was completely intact, you know, she was put in that place of being disabled and she wouldn't like go on the phone and, you know, and in the, in the Jewish world, we're set up through a matchmaker. 
Um, and so that kind of takes a lot of work at, for the adult in, in the who's responsible for the child. And essentially, there were no adults in my my world except for my aunt. Um, and so she essentially made it her responsibility and she wanted to essentially just take care of it so she doesn't have to worry about it. Right. And so I think she found somebody for me and basically said, like, this is really it, man. Like, nobody else is going to want to marry you. She said and that to you. That's that's amazing to me. I, I so can't was, believe that. Like, that's hard. Yeah. That's hard to take in. She was, I, 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 she was emotionally abusive, you know, like she wasn't very nice to me. Yeah. Um, you know, I was like the Cinderella in her, in her world, right. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you were the extra kid. Yeah. I was that extra kid yeah. that nobody really wanted. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I got the hand me down clothes and her right. children got like these really expensive, beautiful <laughs> <laughs> So, um, so she found you this, this loser that she said, this is the only guy that's going to want you. Yeah. And and you bought that, huh? I totally bought it. And here's the crazy thing. So, you know, we went on a few dates, like these are, you know, um, set up and all that kind of stuff, but we're actually out by ourselves. Like we went to battery park, which is a pretty, um, I don't know if you know New York City at all, but it's downtown, very pretty on the water. And we'd walk around and talk for hours and that sort of thing. Um, and he actually told me he has anger problems. <laughs> he actually warned me. And I was like, eh, it should be fine. <laughs> that won't be an issue. Not a problem. No, no worries. <laughs> And he also told me he's poor and he'll probably never have money. Mm. So I was just. Well, how could you say no to that? Come on. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So I we got married three months later. Okay. Okay. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So all the signs were there. Yep. But they I were in a different signs. language, apparently. It was like these huge blinking red signs. And I was just like, eh, no problem. it's all right. <laughs> <laughs> we won't take them to the emergency room. We'll just let everything coast by. It should work out totally fine. Heart attack and whatnot, whatever. <laughs> now, when you were going into this marriage, did you see this as sort of a gateway to something better at this point? I mean, you know, coming from the abusive childhood situation into now a marriage, you know, were you thinking I'm free, I'm done, I'm out, I'm clear? Yeah, it's funny because one of the things my aunt was trying to set up was that I would live. So my mother lived in a duplex on the bottom half of a duplex. And we had someone who lived on the top where she owned the bottom, he owned the top. And she was trying to buy the top from him, from the, the other you know, a uh, person so that we can live in there so that I can continue taking care of my mother. Wow. And my mother looked at me and said, don't you dare you move to New York and you start your own life. And mm. she was like, you are not living here. Where were you living at the time? So I went for a year to a seminary mm-hmm. and that's um, basically 
the religion's way of ensuring, like giving one more year of religious study kind of after high school. Uh, so I was just finishing seminary. And okay. um, my plan was to start college. And that was another thing my aunt was like, uh, there were, I was already starting to leave the religion. I was already kind of starting to open up my, my mind to other ideas. And my aunt saw it. And that was another reason why she wanted to rush to get me married in the hopes I would still stay religious. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and that's one of the things that is very typically done is to ensure no other sins happen like sex and that sort of thing. Um, so that at least the person is married, (laughs) you know, and then of course the ultimate is to have children as many as possible, preferably and that sort of thing. (laughs) So, um, I was really pressured by her that like, I, I need to get married, Mm -hmm. but she also wanted to make sure my mother was okay, even though she had plenty of money. And then it, it ended up being that, uh, my aunt, um, the year that I was uh, in school, um, it was in New York. She had more full-time help for my mother. And my mother got to the point where she can actually take care of herself for the most part. She was able to go to the bathroom herself, go to bed herself, even kind of go in and out of the bath. There was like a seat. So she was able to transfer herself really be mostly independent. Mm-hmm. Um, the only thing she needed help with was preparing food, doing laundry, that sort of thing. And so she had help for only a couple of hours to take care of that stuff. Other than that, she was really self-sufficient. Um, and my father was kind of in and out of her life. She at, you know, points had the guts to kick him out. And so for, let's say a year he was out and then she let him back in. And so it was like years of that. And that kind of started from when I was in high school. And were when, you were you in uh, high school in New York or in Canada at this point? I was still in Canada with her. Um, okay. But I, you know, we had so many talks. And after like a major abusive episode, there, there were some abusive episodes that got so bad. I would run to um, a really close friend of mine Um, And her dad was like a rabbi, but also a psychologist. And he actually guided me and and we we called the cops once on my father um, and he ended up in jail. And um, he uh, uh, I was going to press charges. And then my principal found out, came to the court and made me drop the charges and said, I won't be able to return back to school if I don't drop the charges. You were blackmailed into dropping the charges. That's Pretty insane. much, yeah. Wow. yeah. So um, if you don't mind sharing, I'm just curious, what would an abusive episode look like at this point in your life? With my father? Yeah. <laughs> I wasn't sure if you're talking to my father or my husband. <laughs> oh, we'll get to him. <laughs> um, so what I've learned is a lot of abusive people have very... Stereo, like so they they'll have their go-to abusive methods mm-hmm. so meaning if somebody is a hitter they're not going to all of a sudden choke the person right or if so my father's go-to was choking and pulling me across the floor usually by my hair mm. um and so the times where he almost killed me was when he choked me to the point where i lost consciousness or close to that 
Um, And um, the pulling me through, uh, you know, with my hair wasn't very pleasant either. Um, And so the instant where I called the cops was he had done both. And um, I started screaming and my mother was screaming and he had pushed the wheelchair so hard where my mother went flying um, into the back um, door and um, he ran out and I looked at my mother. Thank goodness my mother was still in the wheelchair. So she didn't really get hurt. She got scared, but it was terrifying. And I said, we have to do something. And um, I ran upstairs to my neighbor, to the one who owned the upstairs. And he was kind of like my go-to. He was like an angel in my life. Like if I didn't know what to do, he was kind of always there. He totally heard what was going on. It wasn't like... I was going to say, someone had to hear this. Yeah. Yeah. So he actually was there and he helped me call the cops. He says, I think, I think you need to do this. Right. Um, and then I, I, I don't know if I ran to, at that point, I went to my, uh, my friend's father as well. I can't actually remember the details that much. Maybe in my book, I had better memory. Maybe I wrote the details better there. Um, but regardless, someone helped me call the cops. Somebody was there. I think it was my upstairs neighbor now that I'm thinking about it. And the cops came and I told them what happened. My mother affirmed what happened and um, they said, okay, we'll go look for him. And are you okay pressing charges? Oh yeah. So then I said, yes. And that's kind of when I went to my friend's father because now I felt bad and I kind of felt like I needed reassurance from a rabbi slash psychologist. Mm-hmm. And so when I went to him, he, he said, your father essentially had lost the right of um, honoring your father, you know, like the Ten Commandments, right? right? Honor thy father and mother. Right. I felt like I was breaking a major commandment, right? And he says, no, because of what he's done, you know, he really kind of lost that. Like you, what you're doing is, is okay. Um, And because you need to protect yourself. So he was totally backing me and he actually came to the court to support me and my principal, he, um, he came there because of that 10 commandment law. And he Mm. said, you know, you are breaking, you know, the ultimate, you know, law. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing that at least you had one of them on your side, right? I mean, at least I had had one rabbi on my side and then the other one was like, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. A big part of honoring someone is, you know, that person being honorable and, uh, yeah. You know, if your father is behaving in this manner, he lost, uh, in my opinion, I would have agreed with the guy who said, you know, hey, enough is enough. You know, you're not doing anything outside of the bounds here. And I really, you know, a big reason why I did call the cops is I needed some adult to protect me. Right. I didn't feel like anyone was protecting me. Right. And I didn't know what to do. You know, I was like, either I need to leave the house or he needs to leave the house and, and, essentially be put away like i did like i got tired of constantly being hurt or being scared of being hurt right you know so uh yeah that that was a, it was definitely a crazy time and so there were years on and off where my mother then like he was out of the house i think for at least a year after that but then it, then he ended up coming back and you mm-hmm. know it was kind of back and forth up until my mother died Right. So, I mean, I guess given that context, I mean, seeing 
you know, seeing your relationship develop with someone that's been arranged uh, to marry you, right? I think that that would look like any kind of light, you know, uh, yeah. against against that color uh, of that background that you shared. Yeah, so I was I was uh, definitely escaping my father. I felt anything was better than my father. Um, I was a, always a very independent thinker and independent, like I, um, I had always a lot of dreams, although back then I didn't really know what my dreams were. And, um, but I, I had a very, very low self-esteem and I, so I was going into a marriage, not realizing that my self-esteem will yet take another blow. Um, so, uh, so it would kind of get to a different level with mm -hmm. my husband. Um, my husband, it turned out, was emotionally abusive. He was, there were a few times he was close to being physically abusive, but he never was really. Um, but he essentially every day said something that was incredibly demeaning, you know, everything from, you know, um, you're essentially the worst mother there ever have been, you know, uh, it's funny because when I was talking to my lawyer many, many years later, when I finally had the guts to leave him and he asked me, he's like, can you give me some examples of, of how he abused you? Like what he would say. Mm -hmm. And I looked at him and I said, I can't believe this, but I'm really having a hard time coming up with concrete examples. Um, it's, 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 ha it happened every single day of my life and yet with him, and yet it was hard for me to come up with specific, like the, like with my father, it was very clear. He choked me. He pulled me by, you know, with my husband, it was a lot of it more subliminal. Like he would have these really long, I call them lectures cause it wasn't a conversation. He would lecture me sometimes for two hours. I would just be sitting there like a little girl and he would be lecturing me on how terrible I was mm. and why I'm terrible. So I'm but, curious what in, what in you allowed you to sit there and, and receive that though? Were you just uh, at this point in your life where you still thought so little of yourself that, you know, you thought, Hey, this is all, this is all I'm worth, or this is all that, you know, I can expect from this relationship or what? Yeah. I, I, I had like zero self-esteem. Mm. Um, I also, not every, um, arranged marriage. In fact, I would hope most arranged marriages, uh, nowadays, and even back then, uh, wouldn't put the woman as still the child or the one that needs to be taken care of. But I always felt like I'm like, I'm kind of like the, 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 not that I need to be taken care of, but that I'm not like the adult, Mm. even though what's weird is I was always the caregiver, right? But I was always still the child that was caregiving, if that makes sense. And so I kind of never, I, maybe I, I never had the opportunity to like, feel like I'm, oh, I'm independent also. Like I'm a free thinker. And what I've learned with abuse, and I've learned that emotional abuse does this more than physical abuse, although physical abuse usually is combined with emotional abuse. With my father, it wasn't so much. My father was more physical because again, he just, he said crazy things, but the things he said were crazy. Like it wasn't like he would give me these speeches like my husband would, right? My husband would just 
stand there for literally two hours and talk to me and tell me how terrible I was. Whereas with my father, it was like craziness. And then his eyes went nuts. And then I knew something bad was going to happen, you know? Um, so with emotional abuse, because it's more subliminal, the person that is being abused actually loses the ability to think to like really so it's if you think of like cults and you think about how they happen a lot of times they're done listening to these long lectures you know and then over and over again the same kind of message and then they start to believe these messages. If you kind of think of like these cults, right? right? And then why aren't they leaving these cults where all of a sudden now they're told to kill themselves? You know, I keep thinking of the one in Texas. Mm-hmm. I don't know, 10 years ago or something? 20 uh, years you're talking ago? about Waco? Waco, right? Is it? That was David Koresh. Yeah. Yeah. It's think- just like, how did these people kill themselves, right? You know, and it's... Yeah, I don't think, I don't think that was a... I don't think that was a kill yourself cult. I think the the Jonestown thing was a kill yourself cult. That's the one where they drank all the Kool-Aid, right? Yeah, that's, I'm thinking of the one where they did these horrible things to themselves. And it's like, how could someone do that, right? It's insane, yeah. But I actually understand that because like the same thing happens to abused women, more emotionally abused women. You literally lose the ability to actually reflect and think and make judgments. And so I would sit there and listen to my husband and I would not be able to argue. Mm -hmm. I I couldn't, I I would not be able to defend myself. I wouldn't be able to have a normal conversation. I would just sit there like this, you know, and just be like, I forget not, nobody can see me, but (laughs) my eyes are (laughs) Head down, eyes closed. (laughs) Yeah. Staring at my feet, yeah, kind of a thing. Slums, you know, I'd be the little right. child. I would just be this victim. Mm-hmm. And um, that, that, and then I would actually start to believe him mm-hmm. after a while. I'd be like, maybe he's right. Like, it's just so crazy how my mind just um, played tricks on me. Absolutely amazing stuff. I'm sure you guys would agree that Esther's story is one for the ages and to know what she's gone through and to know what she's created from that is absolutely fantastic. So what we're going to do, guys, we went about two hours. I'm going to pause in the conversation right here and pick up at this point in the next episode. And inside that episode, we're going to talk a little bit more about the mindsets that were created to exit the situation and to become things like an author, things like a doctor, you know, all the things and all the accomplishments that Esther's been able to accumulate and step into over the years after she agreed that she had value. When she came from that place of knowing that she had value, that's when everything changed. And we're going to pick that up in the next episode, guys. So stay tuned. And uh, that episode will drop next Wednesday. See you then. Take care. That's going to do it for this episode of Hardwater Radio, guys. As always, thank you so much for listening. We appreciate you guys. And if you're vibing on this content, be sure and help us grow the tribe by liking, sharing, subscribing. And by all means, leave us a comment on your favorite podcatcher. Let us know what you like, what you dislike. And if you are someone out there who would like to tell your story, we are a collector of stories here. Shoot me a message, jason at hardwater.com or 
pick me up on social media, uh, Facebook, Instagram, whatever works for you. And I'd love to have that conversation with you guys. Until then, this is Jason Archer signing off, reminding you to remember your future.